Do you want the real story on COVID-19? Are you wondering how to get early treatment for COVID, which is actually available but never spoken about? Do you wish you could hear from a real experts? Maybe one of the top doctors in the world on COVID. Well, get ready to meet Dr. Peter A. McCullough. He has so many letters after his name that I really don't think they'd fit on a business card. He is an internist, a cardiologist, an epidemiologist. He's professor of medicine at Texas A&M College of Medicine in Dallas. He is president of the Cardio-Renal Society of America. He's editor-in-chief of Cardio-Renal Medicine, the journal. Also editor-in-chief of Reviews in Cardiovascular Medicine. He is a senior associate editor of the American Journal of Cardiology. He is considered among the world's leading experts on COVID-19. He actually has 46 peer-reviewed publications on covid and has commented extensively on the medical response to COVID-19 in things like The Hill and on Fox News Channel. On November 19th, 2020, Dr. McCullough testified in the U.S. Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs. And throughout 2021, in the Texas Senate Committee on Health and Human Services at the Colorado General Assembly and the New Hampshire Senate. You are definitely going to want to stay tuned to hear this one. Dr. Peter McCullough, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you on, on behalf of LifeSite and so many of our viewers who are so appreciative of uh, the work you've done, of the work you've done despite the threats, the, the possibility of the cancel culture descending upon you as it has upon so many. Uh, it's, been, it's been truly awesome. Wanted to get right into this because one of the things that's, I think, on everyone's mind is this stuff about what the uh, new variants are, what they you know, uh, what is going on right now, VAERS, which is the vaccine database that uh, is run by the government in the United States, and we know about, you know, its vagaries, but they've recorded now 9,000 deaths, yet there's an attorney by the name of Tom Rents who has announced, basically, he has inside information to say that the deaths in the United States alone are around 40 5,000. Could you comment on any of that? I know you've been speaking about this before. So if you could uh, let us in on that, that would be uh, that would be great to start with. Well, I'm not a party to the lawsuit that was initiated by Attorney Rents, but my understanding is that, you know, we have uh, two major national open sources of a death that's occurred after the vaccine. One is the adver- Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System held by the CDC. There's also a parallel system called vSafe. Uh, controlled by the CDC, but also our Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, CMS, is also recording deaths after vaccination. Now, CMS doesn't cover all Americans, but it covers those on Medicare, uh, those above and below uh, 65 on Medicare, as well as those on Medicaid. And it's a substantial number of individuals. So it's my understanding that this lawsuit broadly uses all sources of information and indicates the mortality rate after the vaccination is at astronomical levels. So let's then back up a little bit. 
Um, let's talk about how did you get started down this road? Um, you are an incredibly accomplished uh, doctor, and yet you find yourself now in the middle of this. Um, how did this start for you? And what are the some of the obstacles you face to start off with? I'm a professor of medicine and a teacher, editor of two major journals, associate editor of a third. I practice both internal medicine, cardiology, maintain my boards in that Uh, And so I see and examine patients every week, but I have my scholarship uh, duties as well uh, as a major editor and contributor in academic medicine. And so when COVID-19 hit, I really saw it as, uh, in a sense, a a call that we needed really America's best and brightest to step forward and face this uh, tremendous crisis. And I didn't see others with me. I didn't see major journal editors uh, really focusing on this and focusing on the really important aspects of the syndrome, and that is helping patients avoid hospitalization and death. So I quickly worked to fill that role uh, with some key contributions. I have now over 45 publications on COVID-19. I've had the illness myself. My family members have had it. And so I think as a single person, I have uh, as much medical authority to render opinions and give Americans and people in the world the right direction as anybody, as anybody that exists on earth right now. It's just unbelievable. Uh, Yet there are so many uh, that are not only ignoring what you say, but also that are completely, well, many, many who haven't heard thanks to our cancel culture, but also uh, many who completely disregard it nonetheless. So tell us if you could, um, Perhaps you can classify, if you will, or describe for us this sort of entire COVID vaccine enterprise. And where do you believe it may have come from, what its goals are? There appears to be a theme throughout the pandemic for the suppression of any early treatment and a variety of responses that work to create as much fear, hospitalization, suffering and death as possible in order to prepare or promote mass vaccination. That theme appears to be readily apparent through all the various threads that we've seen in the last year. And now that we're at this point of mass vaccination, which is is pretty quickly turning into forced mass vaccination, we have to kind of unravel what's happened. I think there are five key messages uh, of scientific truth that I'd want everybody to understand about the virus and the pandemic. And they're, they're, they're fairly straightforward. I'll go through them quickly. Mm-hmm. Number one, the virus is not spread asymptomatically. Only sick people give it to other people. Number two, that if we do any, we should never do any testing of asymptomatic pe- people, the nasal or oral test. All we're doing is generating false positives, creating uh, extra cases, if you will, and creating extra concerns. The FDA never approved these tests for asymptomatic testing. The World Health Organization, as of January, as, as of June 25th, has said no asymptomatic testing, none. So there shouldn't be a single person on earth that should undergo an asymptomatic test or a test done for routine basis. And that's even for travel testing and all that. Is that what you're saying? For any reasons. It violates WHO. It violates all the regulatory. People just ought to walk past those testing stations. They have absolutely no standing whatsoever. Um, Point number three uh, is that natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable there is no meaningful chance of having a second serious case of COVID. In fact, it's never happened in a confirmed case so far in the world. Any of the purported cases that have come up have involved misinterpretation of a false positive PCR test. It doesn't happen. Uh, If it did happen, we would have seen 
thousands, if not millions of people being hospitalized, the same person being hospitalized over and over again for new cases of COVID-19. It hasn't happened. It fundamentally doesn't happen. Even in loosely defined cases, in a paper by Murchu et al., in loosely defined cases where they didn't get an initial test, but maybe had positive antibodies, those patients followed 11 studies, 650,000 individuals, the rate of any significant COVID infection over the long term was 0.2%. So I can tell you, as we sit here today, natural immunity is robust, complete, and durable. It cannot be improved upon by vaccination or any other uh, method. So someone who's naturally immune can walk up to somebody with COVID-19, get a big cough in the face, and they're not going to get the illness. Point number four, COVID-19, no matter what variant, is easily treatable at home and it's amenable to risk stratification. People over age 50, multiple medical problems, should all receive forms of treatment, multi-drug treatment with simple available drugs at home to prevent hospitalization and death. About 85% of hospitalization death is completely avoidable with early treatment. The only way people end up in the hospital and have a miserable time is when they receive no treatment. They don't seek treatment or they're not offered treatment or accepted, and they end up railroaded into the hospital after being sick two weeks at home. Anybody with common sense should understand it's easy to treat the illness when it's say, when it's early and, they, and the symptoms are mild. It becomes progressively worse as people progress in the disease. Uh, there are three major components, viral replication, inflammation, and thrombosis. In the end, people die of blood clots, and it's very hard to reverse those. That's the reason why if we wait to hospitalization, it's too late. If we wait for the oxygen levels to be low because of blood clots in the lungs, it's too late. The fourth point, an important point, is the current COVID-19 vaccines, AstraZeneca, J&J, Pfizer, and Moderna, right now are obsolete. They do not cover the new variants Patients are failing on these vaccines. They're being hospitalized and getting sick despite having the vaccines. And the vaccines at this point in time have amounted to record mortality and injury and should be considered unsafe and unfit for human use. One of the things that's going to be said about your point number four, I think we messed up the point four and five because that was the final one, I take it. But point number four, you were talking about how the natural immunity works and and. Uh, people's responses are going to be right away. Well, what about the variants? Does it work for the variants too? Yeah, well, point number three was natural immunity and natural immunity is complete, robust, and durable and the variants do not penetrate natural immunity. So people who are naturally immune are not coming down with the Delta, Lambda, or Epsilon variants right now. Naturally immune people uh, can rest assured they're fine. Then with the injections, uh, basically not being valuable uh, anymore because of the variants themselves. That's just incredible because we've never heard this. This is not something that anyone's being told. In fact, it's being rammed down everyone's throats. But the other information is also, it's totally unbelieved. Uh, and the reports are being hidden everywhere. Um, in fact, one of the one of the most uh, distressing things for people out there in, in the media land is we're seeing reports of, you know, the evidence of this person got a shot, got the second shot, ended up, passed away. The weirdest part is their whole Facebook account is also deleted. I think it must be so terrible for the families who already lose their loved one. And then because they're a victim of the COVID shot, they are then deleted, their their loved one's Facebook page is deleted as well. And that's happening over and over and over again. Why are these things being hidden? Have you seen this yourself? Is it hard to track this data uh, from the medical side? 
There is an overt censorship program. Everybody should know about it. It's called the Trusted News Initiative. So it was announced to the world in December that social media and mass media was going to do this. Nobody should be surprised about this. The Trusted News Initiative said that it's going to do everything to promote vaccination, and it's going to do everything to scrub any information on early treatment, on vaccine safety. So it was, we were already told this is going to happen. The medical director of YouTube came out and said, listen, we're going to do this. Anything that's not in line with the CDC and the WHO, which means early treatment, which means vaccine safety, none of them are reporting on this, are going to be scrubbed. And they're only going to, in an unbridled way, promote vaccine safety. Everybody should know we're six months into this program. Our agencies have yet to have a press briefing on product safety. Can you imagine the largest mass vaccination program in the history of the world? We should be having at least weekly updates on safety, if not monthly. We haven't had a single press briefing on uh, a complete safety of the products. And so basically, Americans and people around the world had no interest in vaccines at this point in time. We've had a big rush of people to get vaccines in December, January, February. It started falling off a cliff in mid-April. The vaccine centers have been empty for months. There's not a single American that wants a vaccine at this point in time. So we're really getting down to pressure, coercion, uh, threats of reprisal, and even forced vaccination. This is so strange because there you quoted how they were going to go by the CDC and also by the World Health Organization, yet... As you mentioned earlier, the World Health Organization has said no more tests for people who are not showing symptoms. But that's not getting parroted. That's not getting put out there. And they're still doing the tests everywhere. How is it such an incredible double standard when they're not even sticking to what they said they were going to do in the first place? Well, there's double standards all over the place. I think the biggest one is that we have very effective early treatments that are FDA emergency use authorized approved. So we have approved early monoclonal antibody infusions. President Trump received one of them. The American, American government pre-purchased 500 million doses of these, more than every one for every American who got sick. And to this day, they're being hidden. There's no public uh, service information announcements on this. Uh, there's no 1-800 number hotlines. Patients who get sick with COVID-19 seniors are given no access to these treatments. Yet the same agencies that should be providing critical information on FDA-approved EUA products to sick Americans, those same institutions are railroading the public into mass vaccination, which the public doesn't want or need. What are these called? I, I, one of the things I, I know everybody's going to be wondering, what is this called? What can patients ask for uh, in order to provide this uh, early treatment option, uh, I presume home treatment option? Um, is there something they should say that, that medical professions, uh, professionals would be required to give it to them or, or compelled, feel compelled to give it to them? Yes, the next senior citizen who gets sick with COVID-19, either that patient or their family member, should call their local hospital and demand an antibody infusion, a COVID antibody infusion. They're offered by several companies. The leading one right now is Regeneron. Every major hospital medical center should stock them. They have infusion times. You go into the ER, wear a mask, get an infusion in the ER, and then go home. Some even have home health agencies that can administer them. But it's sad that uh, this is not promoted. Nobody knows about it. And this is a double standard. These are just as approved as the vaccines. Now, everybody's heard vaccine morning, noon, at night, and the vaccines uh, don't apply to sick people. 
In fact, the majority of people who get the vaccines will never come in contact with COVID. But our sick patients who have COVID right now, they're offered no treatment, no access to even the monoclonal antibodies. Unreal. Let's talk about the vaccines for a bit. What dangers do these experimental vaccines uh, present to the general public? Well, initially, we thought they were uh, looking pretty good out of clinical trials. And in my practice, uh, in December, January, February, my patients rushed out to get the vaccines. Now, the vast majority are over age 50. I didn't necessarily prescribe them or promote them. In fact, I told patients, you know, if they asked me which one, I said, well, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, it's just one shot. And as we sit here today, actually, the fewest number of bad reactions have occurred with Johnson & Johnson per shot than with Pfizer or Moderna in the United States. But now, coming full forward now, we had a mortality signal emerge January 22nd. We were at 186 deaths in our vaccine program. The usual we would get for an entire year with 70 vaccines, about 500 million shots, would be 158 deaths not temporarily related to the administration. Here, by January 22nd, we had 186 deaths. It passed a confidence limit that we would accept for safety. If there was a data safety monitoring board, they would have shut down the program in February. And so Americans should understand that big clinical investigations like this program should have an, uh, an event adjudication committee, a data safety monitoring board, and human ethics board. And in an active malfeasance, our CDC and FDA don't have any of these safety bodies. And so there's actually no oversight of safety in the program whatsoever. So Americans can walk into these vaccine centers. They're not even, doesn't even take a doctor's prescription and they take the vaccine at their own hazard. And what we've seen since January 22nd is really an atrocity. I think the total number of deaths now inside and outside the United States with the U.S. products is over 10,000 deaths, over 20,000 hospitalizations over 400,000 certified safety events. These are not the preliminary ones. These are the ones the CDC says, in fact, they've happened, that these are permanent, what's called VAERS numbers. And very importantly, uh, the FDA has official warnings on these products. The FDA has a warning on Pfizer and Moderna for myocarditis or inflammation in the heart that can lead to heart failure and cardiac death. And then they have a warning on J&J for blood clots in women ages 18 to 48 in the brain, which is really hard to treat, sometimes can be fatal, as well as Guillain-Barre syndrome or paralysis that starts in the lower extremities and works its way up and paralyzes the body. Americans should be listening to this and having an idea that, wait a minute, this doesn't sound too good for a vaccine that people should volunteer for. It doesn't even require a doctor's a prescription. Uh, they do fall into the category of products that we now know have a dangerous mechanism of action. These are products that can be in an unqualified way declared as being unsafe. In the very beginning uh, of of this whole uh, <laughs> pandemic, we heard the talk about reaching herd immunity, the need to do that. Um, where do you think we are on herd immunity and what do you think the vaccine's role is in that or, or what do you make of that question? I testified in the Texas Senate on March 10th that we had achieved herd immunity by standard CDC equations without any vaccine effect. And herd immunity at that point in time was 80% I calculated for Texas. I was backed up by one of the public health officials. That was a green light to have opening day and 
our baseball stadium in Dallas-Fort Worth, people sitting shoulder to shoulder, no masks. And believe me, the public health officials were all over it. There wasn't any outbreak of virus. And so we had achieved herd immunity. Herd immunity doesn't mean the pandemic is over. It just means that the virus can't spread very far when someone has it. So herd immunity based on natural infection, which is robust, complete, and durable, that's what we want. The problem with the vaccine is that we can't count on it for immunity. And so when we add the vaccine now is we should have 100% herd immunity with the vaccine. Everybody should be covered. We have 50% of Americans uh, that are fully vaccinated and we have 77% of seniors uh, fully vaccinated. I mean, we should basically be covered. And the problem now is the vaccines are failing and we're seeing large numbers of cases in patients who've been fully vaccinated. You've spoken about the spike protein in the vaccine as being a, a phase two of a bioterror weapon. Um, could you elaborate on that? Well, you know, I don't know, honestly, if it's a bioterrorism weapon or not, but it clearly is a medicinal biological program that's gone bad. What, what we know is the dangerous part of the virus is the spike protein, the little spine that's on the ball of the virus. The ball is a nucleocapsid. The spike protein is the spine. That was manipulated in what's called gain-of-function research, so it would be very uh, damaging to the human body. And the wild-type virus was, was that came out of Wuhan and came over to Milan and then New York and New Jersey. That was a very rough virus. And we saw reports on TV of people scrambling for ventilators. Well, progressively over time, the virus has mutated and it's got progressively weaker. For the longest time this spring, our dominant variant was called the UK or alpha variant. We now have the beta variant, which is the South African variant, the gamma variant, which is the Brazilian variant. We have the delta variant, which we'll talk about. That's the Indian variant. And now we have the lambda variant coming out of Peru, which even has more mutations. And now the epsilon variant out of California. So you may want to ask where, what's prompting all these mutations. There's an analysis by Neeson and, uh, from Boston and then uh, collaborators at Mayo Clinic have shown when we get to 25% vaccination in the population, that's when we start to promote these mutant strains. They're latent in the population and then they gain dominance as they scoot past the vaccine. So that happened. Actually, what prompted uh, Delta was actually the Sinovac or the, the whole virus killed vaccine that was being used in India. And what prompted the Lambda variant in Peru was, um, in fact, again, the Coronavac or Sinovac vaccine. It looks like Pfizer, Moderna, and J&J are, prompting, uh, are promoting the, the Epsilon variant out of California. So these strains emerge, and the number of strains is actually going down as we vaccinate. We don't know if that's good or not, but we are ending up with dominant variants. And as we sit here today, over 90% of cases in the UK are the Delta variant, which is not covered by Pfizer, Moderna, or AstraZeneca in the UK. We have, uh, it was last night, it was on national TV, where 40% of hospitalized patients with Delta in the UK have been fully vaccinated. Uh, we had reports out of Israel that it's 80% of all cases and 60% of hospitalized cases in Israel are fully vaccinated with the Pfizer vaccine. So the listeners should understand right now, the vaccines have completely failed on the new variants or strains. The old strains are gone. The wild type virus is completely gone now. And so Delta is emerging as the dominant strain in the United States. And it's rendered our current vaccine program completely ineffective. It's basically now obsolete. One of the big things people are, are talking about, worried about for the future is what we might see this fall with a resurgence of the normal flu season and what that might mean for the vaccinated. Can you unpack a little bit of that for us and what your colleagues and yourself have thought about that? 
Well, all the current epidemic curves or the rises in cases we're seeing is coming from a low baseline. So in Israel, I mentioned that the Pfizer vaccine is not controlling Delta. Well, Israel at its peak had 10,000 cases a day, currently has 1,000 cases a day. It's at 10%. And sure, they're having a little rise within that 10%. In the United States, uh, uh, you know, our maximums were way higher than they currently are now. We're having a little rise with Delta. I've told Americans on national TV starting weeks ago, we're going to have a little rise in Delta. It's obvious now it's not covered by the vaccines and provided patients get early treatment, we'll get through this uh, illness. Now for the fall, it, it does have a seasonal pattern. It all depends on the vaccines. If we continue mass vaccination, I think we will end up with Lambda and Epsilon, and we'll have to see what they bring us in the fall. But mass vaccination, in a sense, now is backfiring on the population. You mentioned uh, something about deaths already, but is there a danger of, uh, I believe it was Dr. Yaden spoke about um, uh, mass deaths or depopulation even. What do you make of those those claims, those those, uh, guesses, hypotheses? I don't know. Obviously, I certainly hope we don't end up with a more virulent strain. It looks like progressively the viruses are getting weaker. The spike protein, which is the pathogenic part of the virus, is physically mutating, it's folding, it's getting smaller. That's how it's actually avoiding the antibodies, which are quite large. So my crystal ball suggests that uh, we're not going to be wiped out by the virus itself. What we're really under threat of is continued uh, death and injury and potentially long-term harm from the vaccines themselves. Finally, a word to doctors. There are a lot of doctors who have come out, who have tried to speak out as as you have, but they're not backed necessarily by uh, the <laughs> amazing list of credentials with Drew Carey. There are, um, some of them are. I spoke with Dr. Francis Christian uh, out of Canada uh, recently, and a 20-year surgeon, also editor, uh, and... and, uh, and um, it's just very credentialed. He actually started the university program where he was teaching, just totally canceled. Um, what do you say to doctors who face this threat and uh, want to do the right thing, feel they can't, they don't know where to go? Well, I think the first thing that each and every doctor has to understand is that we have a code of, 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 of medical ethics. We have our own morals and we have our clinical duties and responsibilities, what we call the fiduciary responsibility to patients. And that is above all, do no harm. We try to help patients uh, uh, the best we can. We care about them always. We absolutely under no circumstances can deny them life-saving medications. We can under no circumstances attempt to uh, pressure, coerce, or threaten patients into receiving something harmful that will be harmful to their bodies, such as the COVID-19 vaccines. So more and more doctors, I think, are coming out of their trance. They're starting to awaken to the horrors of what's been going on the last year, and they're joining our circles. Personally, I've never had a single doctor approach me with any type of threat or challenge. Um, my authority, my medical authority, and how clear the data are uh, to, to these types of doctors uh, really causes them to uh, to retreat uh, in shame and fear. What are your thoughts about the potential harms of the vaccine? Some of the doctors have mentioned uh, possible infertility because they seem to collect in the uh, in the uh, sex organs. Um, have you given thought to that, or, or even apart from that? What do you see as the major ramifications of the vaccines themselves? Hundreds of millions of people got the vaccine. They were sick for a day or two and they felt better. 
and we wish them the best. We hope they got some benefit out of the vaccine program. It looks like it's going to fail anyway, but I personally would not wish harm on anyone. But we do know now that the vaccines are genetic vaccines. They're actually classified as gene transfer treatments. So they transfer genetic information into our cells, either through messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA. They are failed biotechnology programs. They've been around for decades. They haven't worked out in able to being able to treat diseases like Fabry's disease or heart failure or cancer. They were repurposed to be vaccines and trick the body into making the dangerous spike protein, which turns out to be a really bad idea. All the other vaccines that we take expose us to something and we form immunity to it, like a tetanus shot or tetanus protein as an example. But none of our vaccines take over our body's cellular apparatus and cause our bodies to produce a foreign protein. And that's what the vaccines do. We're producing the foreign spike protein, the original Wuhan spike protein. That was the product of gain-of-function research. Now we're having our bodies produce this. And inside cells, it causes damage. It pokes through the surface of cells and causes our body to attack our own organs. And then the spike protein liberates from cells and it circulates throughout the body for two weeks damaging blood vessels, causing blood clots, and damaging key organs like the brain, the heart, the immune system, and the hematologic system. And in a uh, study published by Rose and colleagues in the uh, Journal of Public Health and Policy uh, and Law has demonstrated that the non-fatal injuries tend to skew towards younger individuals. Remember, younger individuals are people who don't need the vaccine anyway. And so these individuals suffer the brunt of these complications, there's over 400,000 of these that the CDC has certified that have happened. So this is very important. So as the brain is injured, we end up with forms of paralysis, memory impairment, blindness, ringing in the ears, uh, paralysis of one side of the face, Bell's palsy, cervical myelitis are being paralyzed from the waist down. And some of these neurologic uh, effects are late. And Senator Ron Johnson held the first press briefing on vaccine injuries. You know, I told you the CDC and NIH has yet to have a single press briefing on this. Senator Johnson basically held one and asked people to tell their stories. And, and I think Americans were stunned when they learned the original subjects from the clinical trials had the late emergence of these side effects nine months later, nine months later. And these individuals uh, ended up with uh, forms of blindness. They couldn't swallow seizures. There was a little girl on a feeding tube. I mean, it was absolutely horrible. That was just neurologic. Now we're facing the immediate cardiac effects of myocarditis, which the FDA has put a warning on Pfizer Moderna. What happens is after the second shot within about 48 hours, the spike protein is produced in heart muscle cells. It attracts inflammation in the heart, and then it actually starts damaging the heart to the point where there's chest pain, EKG changes, uh, signs and symptoms of heart failure, uh, markedly ele market elevations of cardiac troponin, a blood test showing cardiac injury is typically 10 to 100 times higher than a typical heart attack. This is a massive amount of damage to the children's hearts. And then about 25% have signs or symptoms of heart failure, reduced left ventricular ejection fraction on echo and echocardiography, and they require heart failure medications. They can have no physical activity uh, for several months and then have need follow-up. And as a cardiologist, I'm seeing these patients I'm enormously disturbed. Um, I'm completing the vaccine event re reporting system forms. And, you know, the CDC is checking and verifying the data. So what we see in the CDC reports is real. The CDC has 2,000 kids 
who have been damaged with myocarditis, not a single one of them need the vaccine to begin with. And so the parents and the children and the, the college students and university students are outraged that they're being forced to take the vaccine, which offers them no benefit and is clearly causing harm. Unbelievable. You had mentioned about the messenger DNA, uh, RNA, um, and does that affect our DNA? Does it change our DNA in any which way? Messenger RNA, which is made normally from human DNA, is typically used one time to produce a protein, and then it's dissolved by what's called RNAases. But when we have viral sources of uh, RNA, or we make synthetic messenger RNA, which is what Pfizer and Moderna make, uh, they are modified in a way, particularly the, the synthetic RNAs, to, to resist destruction. And we think they're used over and over again. That's the reason why they create such high levels of spike protein and antibody response. And we knew from other disease platforms that these messenger RNAs are long-lasting in the body. They're not gone in a couple of days like we originally thought. They're probably there for months or more. And in a recent paper by um, uh, Anthony Kiragakoulos that is in a preprint from Athens, Greece, he's demonstrated that these messenger RNAs uh, in a sense, are incompatible with cellular life, that they change the thermodynamics of cells. Cells are not meant to handle yet another piece of messenger RNA uh, for over and over again. And if these stay in the cells long enough uh, and the caps uh, become modified, it's possible that they can be reverse transcribed. And that means from messenger RNA, we can actually have a piece of DNA put in, and that DNA then gets put into our chromosomal DNA. And we know this happens with other forms of RNA, like retrovirus, retroviruses, they're reverse transcribed. And we have a library of non-human DNA in our chromosomes. It's called the HERV library. And the, the concern is that, in fact, these uh, forms of genetic treatments will indeed be gene transfer. They were designed to be gene transfer products to begin with, and that will actually get some genetic material permanently transcribed into our chromosomes. And I can tell you, I don't know a single person who wants that. I don't know a single American that would feel comfortable with that or any person in the world. And for all of those reasons, I think it's time to close down the experimental messenger RNA or adenoviral DNA programs. There are some safe vaccines coming. Uh, one of them is called Novavax, and that is an antigen-based vaccine like a tetanus booster. It looks like it creates a sore arm, but it's every bit as good as Pfizer and Moderna and involves no genetic manipulation of the human body. So I think if there was a senior citizen or a healthcare worker that got left out of the program and they needed a vaccine this fall, I think they can look forward to Novavax. Any parting words that you wanted to convey to, to Americans, to people around the world uh, who might be watching? I think the, the next steps, um, uh, my advice right now, and it's really, it's from a position of medical authority. There's no one in the world who has more medical authority right now than I do, is go, let's go ahead and shut down the vaccine program. It's not working. It's failed. Uh, we, we don't want to see another person harmed with the vaccine. Let's immediately pivot to early treatment. Use the early treatment protocols that I've published and are widely used in the world in August of 2020 in the American Journal of Medicine, December of 2020 in reviews in cardiovascular medicine. There's other ones. There's uh, the IMATH protocol, MATH Plus protocol from the Frontline Critical Care Consortium. Use protocols available in your areas of the world to treat high-risk patients with available drugs to reduce hospitalization and death. That's going to be the way out of our crisis. Right now, the vaccine is clearly making things worse. 
Uh, patients are not being treated, and, and, and things are going to be much worse in a few months if we don't make these immediate changes that I've advised all governments in the world to make. Wow. Dr. McCullough, thank you so very much uh, for being with us on this program and for all that you've done, and we pray that you will continue to do. Uh, may God bless you. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless all of you. We'll see you next time. Hi, this is John Henry Weston, the co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News. I'm coming to you today because we want to be sure that we are communicating clearly with you, our loyal followers. Things are really heating up, as I'm sure you can see. Christians, conservative truth-tellers are being targeted, are being banned from social media platforms like Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at an alarmingly fast rate. They are attempting to suppress any narrative that does not fit that of the mainstream media. We knew this day would come. We have been warning everyone who would listen and attempting to build up alternative platforms to continue to reach you. We have established ourselves on all sorts of platforms I'm going to explain in a minute, but the most important thing to do is come direct to LifeSiteNews.com because there we will always be. But we've also established ourselves on platforms like Parler and MeWe, and our videos can be found on Rumble as well. We would love to see each of you on those platforms too, as they are not censoring or suppressing the truth that we are sharing every single day. More than these alternative social media platforms, we highly encourage you to subscribe to our email newsletter. We have really built up a large list of loyal readers on our email marketing platform, and we have prepared several backup plans for, well, I want to say if, but it's really when, we are removed from our current platform as well. Additionally, I really encourage you, as I said before, to make it a regular habit to go directly to lifesitenews.com. Make it your homepage. While all of these different platforms are an excellent way to curate your news, going directly to our website means that you will never encounter any censorship or sudden loss of LifeSite News reporting. Here's the thing. We will never stop sharing the truth. We founded this organization with the mission to be the life, family, and culture source for men and women who seek to know the truth. We have established a track record of honest reports, and this will never stop, even with censorship happening around the globe. Again, I'm encouraging you to join us on Parler, MeWe, Rumble, and on our email list. You can find all the direct links in the description of this video. May God bless you and keep you, and we are so thankful that you've chosen to follow and support LifeSite News. I'm John Henry Weston, co-founder and editor-in-chief of LifeSite News.